This episode is brought to you by Ethical Electric, who makes it fast and easy to switch to green, renewable energy for your home or office. Visit ethicalelectric.com slash best for details. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Upworthy, The Young Turks, Activism from Food and Water Watch, Democracy Now!, The Green News Report, and AJ+. minute drive west took us to the Bardson Farm, the site of one of the first wells drilled in Bradford County. We were offered $100 an acre, which was going right at that time. It's naturally increased since we signed our lease as people became more informed as to what the gas companies are actually here for. And, you know, I don't begrudge anybody who can get a better contract than what I did. I mean, I went with a local lawyer who was very good with contracts, but at the time, all of this was still so new that they even missed things, which I have felt have come back to bite me. So again, you know, get somebody that you are, it was very reputable if you're considering signing a lease. So we signed that lease. Like I said, we were given $100 an acre. So, being farming as what it is, we took it to the bank. I mean, that was $19,000. Caught up on some bills, paid off some loans. It was like winning the lottery. It didn't expect it to be long-term. And they came in here in August of 2008 and drilled the well. So we went through the process of the drilling, which took approximately eight weeks. Then the fracking. Come here. And in March of 2009, you can see the damages that runs through the woods up through there, crossing our fields, crossing other neighbors' properties, the pipeline went in. That brings with it its own set of problems that you really should need to be aware of. Um, when, you si well, when we signed the lease, we were told it was for a 30-foot right-of-way. They do not tell you that they clear cut between 100 and 150 feet. So that permanently destroys a lot of woodland, a lot of natural habitats. Uh, they do reclaim it, but again, this is something that you need to have an explicit black and white in your contract because their processes of reclaiming do not usually follow the conservation practices that have been established, even if you have them on record down at the, well, for us, it's in White Sox. They sit there and they tell you, prove it. So you make numerous trips down to get your conservation plans, and you get some very helpful conservation officers who will come out and tell these people that an alfalfa plant field cannot be replaced with a conservation contractor's mix simply because it's fast growing. We went online as far as production in April of 2009. Uh, there's still continuous traffic in and out with trucks, maintenance, work crews, service crews. In June of 2010, a set of these servicemen were out there working. To this day, I can only tell you that for, through Chesapeake, that they were doing maintenance work. Within days, our water changed. We went from having water that 
didn't seem out of the norm to drawing Alka-Seltzer out of your faucet. And so we called Chesapeake and they came in and a little air monitor sent off all these bells and whistles within three to five seconds and he determined that we had an excessive level of methane. DEP tested that two weeks later. It measured at 56.3 milligrams per liter. DEP also told me that over three, you should have a vent system and a monitor in your house. Our vent system did not get installed until December and Chesapeake has never brought us a monitor. So I have strategically left windows open in my house for a constant airflow for over a year now, even through the winter because I'm afraid of the buildup of methane. We are at a high explosive level. But we have gotten very good at taking very short showers. We're usually within under five minutes because if you're in the shower longer than that, you do get a dizzy, lightheaded feeling. But nobody can explain why. I can often hold a standard kitchen match to my water. And like I said, it is unpredictable, but the methane randomly travels with the water. And sometimes it will light quite spectacularly. Just like that. Now Chesapeake is going to say, well, there's natural occurring methane in the wells already. What do you have? What your, what's your reply to, to a comment like that? My reply is that their post-fracking test their own, the methane tested 0 0.01 milligrams per liter and since July of um, 2010 it has tested as high as 64 milligrams. So obviously something has changed. And usually you can Meth it. They say as long as it aerates, it's safe to drink. And usually you can see a little bit of um, gas just aerating out of there. Not really, you can see it or not. Sometimes you have to yeah, hold it just to. Yep. My issue with Chesapeake right now is independent water tests have shown that there is other contaminants in my water, but DEP and Chesapeake only seem to be concerned with the high levels of methane. We discovered back in November, because at that point we were boarding my daughter-in-law's horses, the water won't freeze. So, but nobody has determined what chemical cocktail is the cause of it. A local water company brings me 25 of those blue five-gallon jugs once a month. And because it, without admitting that they were at the cause for this, they did not feel it was necessary to provide water to any of my animals. So therefore, I no longer have any animals in the barn. Uh, what animals we do have, we have a herd of 18 beef animals that are in the pasture across the road because that way they have 
access to a spring-fed source because the methane does seem to be a migratory problem. But again, Chesapeake won't admit that they had anything to do with it. We used to have, you know, like I said, dairy animals. We had hogs. We had my daughter-in-law's horses, the cats and the dogs, and I don't let any of them drink the water. So you've got this uh, compressor back there with an access road that's being used by the gas company almost a weekly basis? Oh, daily. Daily basis, and you didn't sign on for any of this? Well, when we agreed to the access road being here, we were all given the impression that they were temporary. Again, this is a term I've learned that the gas company uses very vaguely. Temporary for me is not temporary for them. They're very friendly because they want something from you. They want your property. And they are willing to bend over backwards and answer what appears to be any of your questions. And I'm here today to tell you that for every question you think they answer, there's probably 10 of them they didn't. You want, if you're not satisfied with the answer they give you, please ask somebody else because I won't say the gas company will lie to you, but I'll tell you they withhold information. And they're not as upfront as they appear to be. Pretty intense. <laughs> yeah. You probably can't see anything. Wow. I can see the red glare. Well, I'll put it back on black and white thing. Yeah. I'd love to send a copy of that to my representatives. <laughs> I'm glad this is not my land. The biggest thing is the amount of water that is used just in the fracking process and then the rest of the gas extraction and what that feedback does to our water supply. That's a huge concern and should be looked at. I mean, this is this is the collective good. This is the commonwealth. This is, you know, where people should be watching for each other, not just, you know, momentary, monetary advantage. I just think it looks like it's a little more pervasive than I thought. You know, there's a lot of hidden wells you can't see from the roads. If you're if you're real discriminate, you can see some some rises in the land where they put pads in. But I think it's in a lot more nooks and crannies than, than I previously thought. water that has been tainted by the fracking process. Well, right now uh, in Nebraska, there is a proposal 
that out-of-state dirty water should be moved into the state and dumped into uh, a body of water that they currently have. So let me give you some more details on that. Apparently, the Nebraska Oil and Gas uh, Conservation Committee met to talk about this proposal. The committee is holding public hearings on the proposal by an oil company to ship out-of-state fracking wastewater into Nebraska, where it will be dumped into a disposal well. Okay. Now, this could be a complete and utter disaster, especially because there have been stories of this wastewater uh, somehow seeping into the drinking water in communities throughout the country. So the Texas Energy Corporation wants to truck as much as 10,000 barrels a day of the chemical-laden fracking wastewater to a ranch north of Mitchell, Nebraska, for disposal. Now, there is a Nebraska farmer who's a little concerned about this. I should note that he's not necessarily against fracking. He's still on the fence about it. But James Osborne wanted to talk about his fear of his drinking water getting tainted. So he attended this committee hearing, and here's what happened. So what I brought, and my question is, would you drink this? It's not mixed up real well. Well, there are some goodies down there. I better share with this class. So you told me this morning when I was in here talking to you that you would drink this water, right? So would you drink it? Yes or no? Sir, we can either comment or Oh you can't you can't answer any questions? No, sir. So my answer would be no. I would not drink. Okay, who doesn't love that dude's overalls? <laughs> it's like, look, dude, I'm a farmer. I'm gonna show it to you by wearing these some significant overalls. <laughs> okay, and and I like his honesty about the fracking. He's like, look, man, people make money from fracking, mm -hmm. so I'm not against it. I'm just saying I don't know that I want the water to leak into my water. Right? Mm -hmm. It's the old NIMBY, right? Not in my backyard, right? <laughs> I love the the. People that he's talking to there on the committee who are like, uh, sorry, we can't answer anything. But what's when the, you, you come up with that rule? <laughs> whenever it became inconvenient for them to answer questions, that's when they came up with the rule. But this is the second story in a week where someone has called someone else's bluff, right? right. In one case, there was a Monsanto supporter who said that, you know, drinking a cup of Roundup, which is a pesticide, is totally safe for human consumption. The French reporter told him, all right, well, will you drink it? And he's like, I'm not an idiot. <laughs> and in this case, the same thing happened where, you know, you have a member of the community who's concerned about something, legitimately concerned about something, and the confrontation works out exactly how you would expect it to work out. The officials don't know what to do. Yeah. So a little bit more nuance on this, because as I look at that water, it's, he explains that it's sludgy water that could result from spills or from seeping into the water uh, table. So, of course, the answer from the other side is going to be, oh, don't worry, it's not going to seep in. So it won't be like that water, so that's why I don't have to drink that water, mm -hmm. right? But how do you know it's not going to seep in? And that's the whole point. Uh, here in the James Osborne is making the point that, like, well, you don't know it's not going to seep in, and you're putting it into our reservoir, right? And, and it's, like you point out, 10,000 barrels a day of chemical-laden fracking wastewater. I don't want that anywhere near my drinking water, Right? Could it seep into the drinking water? Could. And then you got to drink this, or I got to drink this, and I don't want to drink this. And it's not as if 
that hasn't happened already in other communities. So it's a legitimate concern. And I think that when it comes to something like fracking, I mean, we put, you know, the cart ahead of the, the horse. Is that what they say? Is I that, think so. I think yeah. I fucked that up. Whatever. No, no, you I guys, think that's you, right. you guys get the point. Um, there needs to be more research done before you start doing a completely different process of extracting natural gas, right? And, and we just kind of like take what the corporations say at face value when in reality you could have some serious environmental issues. Yeah. And look, man, uh, I wouldn't want wastewater, uh, especially to that degree, anywhere near my, uh, it were my neck of the woods. Mm -hmm. I'll be honest, I'll do a NIMBY too. I'd say not in my backyard, right? And if you're going to put the wastewater, I can't have you just given some uh, campaign contributions to three committee members. I don't know if that's the case in this situation. And then getting by by giving every, a couple of uh, bucks here and there. You're going to put it in my backyard, then you better pay me a lot of money to put that wastewater in my backyard, knowing that it could seep in. Yeah. Now, are you ready to pay me that money? Or are you just trying to slide it in and get away with it so that it's our problem and not your problem anymore? Right? So if you're getting natural gas and you're making a ton of profit from it, you also got to deal with the consequences. You can't pass that expense onto local communities in Nebraska and just hope to get away with it. Going out of 80 to the West Coast, stopped in a sleepy town, left my change and walked out. I didn't even turn around. What they were getting next to was that old familiar sound that you can't get away from. No, you can't get away. No, you can't get away from No, you can't get away You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, ban fracking on public lands. While an outright ban on fracking would probably be the best plan for the environment and our drinking water, managing to pass a ban that prohibits the practice on public lands would go a long way towards curbing its effects. Representative Mark Pocan of Wisconsin reintroduced his bill to do just that last week, on Earth Day, in fact. Food and Water Watch is supporting the Protect Our Public Lands Act of 2015 to both reduce the impact on the climate and to keep the areas around our national parks and monuments from being destroyed. According to Food and Water Watch, at the end of 2014, oil and gas companies had leases on over 34 million acres of public land and over 200 million more are being targeted for drilling. Serious damage has already been done. Habitat destruction and the potential for damage to parks and monuments is only increasing. You can visit foodandwaterwatch.org's Take Action tab to add your name and, as always, use contactingthecongress.org to let your legislators know you support Rep. Pocan's bill so they should sign on as co-sponsors. California is especially impacted by the water required to fuel the fracking process. The drought and Governor Brown's mandatory 25% state reduction on water use is getting national attention, but as you're about to hear, there are huge exemptions for agriculture agriculture, and energy. According to Reuters, California used 70 million gallons of water to frack in 2014. D. Smog blog reports that the oil industry insists it's a responsible user of water. But if things are dire enough to limit household use, perhaps these exemptions aren't prudent. Clean Water Action at cleanwater.org has a petition calling for Governor Brown to impose a moratorium. If you're a resident of the state, you can sign on to contact him through the link on their homepage. And 
anyone can use the contact us links at ca.gov to let them know what impacts one state affects everyone. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestofleft.com. If drinkable water matters to you, be sure to hit the share button to spread the word about Protect Our Public Lands Act of 2015 via social media so that others in your network can support it too. Activism. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage with action? California Governor Jerry Brown ordered residents and non-agricultural businesses to cut water use by 25% in the first mandatory statewide reduction in the state's history. 98% of California is now suffering from drought. Governor Brown issued the executive order at the mostly snow bear Phillips Station in the Sierra Nevada mountains. The nearby Sierra at Tahoe Ski Resort closed for the season weeks ago due to lack of snow. One thing we know is we're standing on dry grass and we should be standing in five feet of snow. That's the way it has been. We're in an historic drought and that demands unprecedented action. For that reason, I'm issuing an executive order mandating substantial water reduction across our state. As Californians, we have to pull together and save water in every way we can. This executive order, which I've signed today, it's long, it uh, covers a number of different details. In fact, I've never seen one quite like it before. It's going to uh, save water. Uh, by uh, mandating uh, real reductions uh, in a number of areas. It's going to affect golf courses, uh, people's lawns, uh, universities, campuses, uh, all sorts of institutions, uh, the median with vegetation on our roads and highways. It affects all of that. One group not facing restrictions under the new rules is Big Agriculture, which uses about 80% of California's water. The group Food and Water Watch California criticized Brown for not capping water usage by corporate farms that grow water-intensive crops, such as almonds and pistachios, most of which are exported out of state and overseas. Adam Sko of Food and Water Watch California said, quote, In the midst of a severe drought, the governor continues to allow corporate farms and oil interests to deplete and pollute our precious groundwater resources. Studies show the current drought, which has intensified over the past four years, is the worst California has seen in at least 120 years. Some studies suggest it is the worst drought in the region in more than a thousand years. While much of the eastern United States experienced record cold temperatures, California, as well as Utah, Arizona, Nevada, and Washington, each saw their hottest winter ever. In January and February, temperatures were one degree Fahrenheit hotter in California than last year, which ended as the hottest year on record by nearly two degrees. Deke Arndt of the National Climatic Data Center said, quote, the 21st century 
for sure is being characterized by persistent, ubiquitous drought in the West. The projection is for that to continue, he said. We go now to San Francisco, where we're joined by environmental reporter Mark Hertzgard. His latest story, How Growers Gamed California's Drought. He's also the author of the book, Hot, Living Through the Next 50 Years on Earth. Mark Hertzgard, welcome back to Democracy Now! Can you talk about what the governor has mandated, who is included, and who isn't? Sure, it's good to be here. The new uh, executive order by Governor Brown issued yesterday really focused mainly on the uh, urban sector. As he mentioned in the clip you just showed, this is going to affect golf courses and uh, median strips and a number of other uses in the urban areas where he demands a 25% mandatory immediate cut in consumption. That means that the water agencies, the public agencies in control in those areas of water supply, have to deliver 25% cuts. What was striking about the order is that uh, it did not require those same kinds of cuts from the agriculture sector, which in California is the big player in water. Uh, agriculture uses about 80% of all the developed water here in the state. I should add, Amy, that um, Governor Brown's uh, spokespersons, when I contacted them last night, said that it was true that the executive order uh, only required, quote, plans from uh, these big agricultural water districts. But they pointed out that the water districts have already been cut back earlier this year, uh, both the state supplies and the water system, uh, sorry, the, the uh, state and the federal uh, water supplies have already been cut back by a larger amount. Nevertheless, the new executive order does focus mainly on the cities, not on the countryside. Mark, could you explain why it is? Why uh, is uh, agriculture exempt uh, from the uh, uh, orders that the governor has given? From the new orders, uh, it's what the, uh, again, what the spokespersons for the governor say is that, look, they've already, agriculture's already taken a hit. It's been, they say, a bigger hit than we're asking from uh, urban users. And uh, we plan to uh, ask for more going down the road. The plans that are required under Governor Brown's executive order from the agricultural water districts will be used, uh, the governor's aides say, they will be used to uh, try to diminish the amount of groundwater that's being uh, consumed in the future. And that's a, a key thing for people to understand, that right now when there is no rain, and there, we're going in now to the fourth year of this historic drought here in California, and when there is no rain and there's not enough supply coming uh, from the, the, the reservoirs and so forth, what happens is that the farmers basically drill deeper down under the earth to get the groundwater, the ancient groundwater that's, that's down there. And in a normal year in California, that groundwater provides about 40% of our water supply. But in the dry years, it's up to 60%. And if you go down to the Central Valley, where most of the farming takes place, as I have on reporting trips, you know, we're now in a kind of an agricultural arms race down there where farmers, neighboring farmers, everyone's trying to drill, drill deeper and deeper wells to get down and, and grab that groundwater. And of course, that does favor the larger corporate farmers over the smaller mom and pop operations. Uh, the big danger of that, though, and this is the real uh, potential doomsday scenario here in California, is that the more that you go down and use that groundwater and suck it up like a straw, the greater danger is, uh, the greater the danger is that you collapse those aquifers underground, uh, that they compress and you essentially have a situation where they are rendered uh, barren, imp 
in, uh, in perpetuity, and that would be a real problem. So we can't keep relying on this groundwater depletion forever. There has to be a a smarter way to do this. When California Governor Jerry Brown announced his water restrictions Wednesday, he was joined by Frank Gerke, the California's Department of Water Resources. He said the state's snowpack, a major source of water for the rest of the year, is at its lowest level on record. You're at the uh, Phillips uh, snow course for the April 1st, 2015 measurement. And as you can clearly see, there is no snow at this location. And this is the first year in its uh, measurements going back to 1942 where this snow course has been bare, no snow at all. And unfortunately, that's what we're finding more or less statewide, where upwards of 60 to 70 percent of the 240 manual snow course measurements that are being made on or about April 1st are showing bare ground. This is bad news in terms of the the, you know, the state's water pitcher. That was Frank Erke of the California Department of Water Resources, Mark Gertzgard. What is the connection between the drought you're seeing in California now and climate change? This is a preview of what we're going to be seeing more and more as the 21st century un, unfolds. Uh, there, the, the, the absolute historic low in the snowpack that we're seeing here, it, frankly, it's, it's quite scary, but it's quite directly related to, to climate change. You, you mentioned, Amy, at the top of the show, we've had the hottest winter in our uh, modern history here. Well, what that means is that uh, the precipitation that we do get when it lands coming in, the storms that come in from the Pacific Ocean and they, they hit the Sierra Nevada, it means that that precipitation tends to fall as rain rather than snow. And uh, the other thing, of course, is that as it's warmer, uh, the droughts have increased, and, and that means that there's less precipitation altogether. And uh, this is going to be continuing. The scientists are quite clear on that. Um, historically, this region has seen droughts of 10 years duration and longer regularly. It's not frequent, but it's regular. And what the scientists are telling us now is that we're going to be seeing more severe and more frequent droughts going forward. And that's why... Uh, so many of the water experts that I interviewed for this story in the Daily Beast say that really what we need to be talking about is not to demonize agriculture or demonize a particular plant like uh, almonds or broccoli. What we really need to do is to reform the incentive structure that governs the price of water and the way that, that we use it in California. Right now, uh, the experts pretty much uniformly say that water is still priced too cheaply, especially out in the agricultural areas, and this encourages waste, which Governor Brown quite rightly pointed out yesterday we can't afford. And the governor's executive order uh, quite precisely targets uh, the urban areas and asks for smart things. The, the, the kind of conservation measures that he outlined uh, are only sensible. Fixing leaks, uh, leaky pipes and leaky faucets and so forth. We can do a lot with that, but you can't leave 80% of the problem off the table by not uh, touching the agricultural districts. Mark, in your story, uh, um, How Growers Gamed California's Drought, you also mention uh, a person by the name of Stuart Resnick. Could you explain the importance of mega operations like Paramount Farms in the water crisis and also in determining uh, the price of water? 
Sure. Uh, that's a key point. You know, there's a lot of Californians who are suffering right now, especially farm workers. There are communities out in Central Valley, uh, the poor communities where a lot of farm workers live, that literally don't have water coming out of their household taps anymore. That is not the case for Mr. Stuart Resnick and a lot of the bigger farmers. And in fact, my story in, in the Daily Beast started with a conference that Mr. Resnick and his pistachio company, Paramount Farms, held just last month where uh, they bragged, literally bragged and celebrated about the record profits that they're making on pistachios, on almonds, and not only the profits, but the record production levels and the record acreage levels, which means that as the state has been going into drought, nevertheless, uh, agricultural interests are planting more and more acreage, new almond trees, new, uh, we're, we're growing alfalfa here, which is a very thirsty crop and that gets exported over to China. There's all kinds of examples of this. Um, but this, uh, the pain is not being felt, uh, equally here. The, the growers at that conference, they literally, uh, trooped out of that conference listening to Louis Armstrong saying, it's a wonderful world. And I think the mood was perhaps best captured by one grower who said, quote, I've been smiling all the way to the bank, and unquote. And they played a clip from that, uh, that Tom Cruise movie, uh, Jerry Maguire, where Cruise yells, yells out, show me the money. Well, they're making plenty of money, some of the big farmers here. And that's largely because they are still getting plenty of water. And as I say, the experts say that this water is underpriced and that if we did price it properly, which means a little bit higher, uh, that there's enormous strides that California could be taking with water efficiency. Uh, we literally could essentially wipe out the effects of the drought in California. Uh, 22% decrease in water consumption in the agricultural areas, which would be roughly the equivalent of the amount of surface water that the farmers did not have last year because of the drought. So there's a lot that can be done technologically, <coughs> but until you get the the pricing right and the political economy of the strait, uh, we're not going to see those. What things. about that? Um, as you describe uh, Stuart Resnick, a Beverly Hills billionaire known for his agriculture, sprawling agricultural holdings, his connection to the governors of California. Not just the governors. Mr. Resnick, as you mentioned, he's a billionaire. He's, he made his money by basically by not so much by being a smart farmer uh, as being a smart businessman and a great, great marketer. He hired Stephen Colbert to do a uh, Super Bowl commercial for pistachios. Uh, and he has seen, as many big uh, business people do, that you have uh, great advantages if you throw a lot of money around in politics. And he has been a bipartisan campaign contributor to Republicans and Democrats alike. Pretty much every governor, uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein, all of them have been recipients of Mr. Resnick's uh, campaign contributions. And so, in a way, he's kind of the, the example of what is happening now down in the Central Valley, where if you drive up Interstate 5, which is the main highway connecting Los Angeles and, and Sacramento and San Francisco, for that matter, you'll see signs along the road that thousands and thousands of motorists pass every day blaming Congress, and specifically Nancy Pelosi, by the way, uh, blaming Congress for the supposed Dust Bowl that's happening there. But there's a, uh, a picture that really puts the lie to that. Some of those signs are put up right in front of newly planted almond trees. Uh, and almonds are an extremely thirsty crop. So even as these farmers are trying to shift the blame to the federal government, they themselves are planting some of the thirstiest crops you can imagine 
down there in the middle of a drought. And the point here is not to demonize agriculture or almonds for that matter. The point is let's get the pricing right and let's treat everyone fairly. We can have a prosperous agricultural sector in California and we need to. Agriculture is major, uh, California is an agricultural superpower. It produces half the, the fruits and vegetables uh, and nuts that are consumed in the United States. But uh, we can't keep doing that at the expense of our long-term water future. And very quickly, we have 30 seconds. What does this 25% reduction mean practically in your lives in California? Well, it depends on how it's done. Uh, there's a lot of uh, waste that happens in the urban sector, too. And so in the short term, uh, it's people are being told, shorter showers, water your lawn only twice a week, restaurants are told only serve water if the customer explicitly asks for it, but we're going to have to do more. And the most important thing, again, is to stop wasting. Fix the faucets, fix the pipes, and uh, there will How be assistance from the state government doing that. How is this enforced? That is one of the problems. So the San Jose Mercury News pointed out that a lot of these regulations are difficult to enforce because you've essentially got to go into people's uh, homes and businesses, but that's the job of the water agency. And I think that's what Governor Brown was trying to do yesterday, is to call on the state to say, look, we've got to step up and do this, and everyone pull together. Everyone should pull together, but they need to pull together equally. One easy way to make a difference and vote with your dollars is to sign up to replace fossil fuels with green energy for your home or office. I've partnered with Ethical Electric, a clean energy company that makes it fast and easy to switch to wind power for your energy needs. Nothing about how you receive your energy will change. You continue to receive your bill from your regional utility, but you'll be buying 100% Pennsylvania wind energy with your monthly dues and supporting Best of the Left at the same time. Just go to ethicalelectric.com slash to sign up. They service states from Illinois over to Connecticut and down to Washington, D.C., and they're always working on expanding into new territory. So if you're anywhere in that area, check them out to see if you're covered. If you're in another area of the U.S., I recommend simply Googling the phrase buying green power to find the green power network from the U.S. Department of Energy, where you'll be able to find the green energy suppliers in your area. Again, that's ethicalelectric.com slash best. And that link is also in the sidebar of my website. Or simply Google buying green power. And if you're outside the U.S., then you're on your own. Now on to our main story, Reality Bites California. We're standing on dry grass, and we should be standing in five feet of snow. In a dramatic press conference atop a snowless Sierra Nevada mountain, following officials announcing a new record-low snowpack, California Governor Jerry Brown this week ordered mandatory water restrictions for cities and towns across California to reduce their water usage by 25%. We're in an historic drought. And that demands unprecedented action. For that reason, I'm issuing an executive order mandating substantial water reduction 
across our state. Now, although the new restrictions were hailed as a good beginning, critics noted that it covers only urban users, which account for only 15% of the state's water. No cuts in water use will be required from the state's biggest water user, the powerful agriculture industry, which draws 80% of the state's water. And yes, global warming has amplified and intensified this historic drought. According to NASA scientist Ben Cook on CNN, he says it's only going to get worse. And the problem is that we expect with global warming in the coming decades and next century that, you know, these droughts are going to come probably a little bit more often. They're probably going to be a little bit more severe. And because there's so many people now in these regions, it's going to be that much more impactful. You know, Desi, we have been reporting on these problems for uh, now more than six years here on the Green News Report. We have been warning about what was coming. I had always thought somewhere in my brain that, you know, the worst sort of long-term impacts would be felt first in places like Florida, the East Coast, where the sea levels were rising and... And storm damage is more severe. Correct. But for the sustained damage. And now, ironically enough, out here in... In California, we seem to be on the very front bleeding edge of this climate crisis uh, as our state is now going through this unprecedented drought and we are being forced to take unprecedented actions. Kind of ironic, given the fact that the state has been uh, among the best in the country when it comes to environmental issues. Yeah, and you know, what's sad is that scientists have been warning about these impacts for decades and the climate change denial industry has been blocking action for decades. To give you an idea of just how how long they've been blocking action. 35 years ago this week, in 1980, CBS News anchor Walter Cronkite warned America about global warming. Well, that's impossible. I thought that all the scientists were warning about global cooling back in the uh, late 70s and <laughs> 80s to hear the deniers tell it. Of course, they weren't. More scientists were warning about warming than cooling, barring at least one sensational magazine cover back in the 70s. But even then, the clarion call was quite clear. We're going to play it out with this extended excerpt from that 1980 report by CBS News and Walter Cronkite, unearthed by journalist Peter Dykstra of DailyClimate.org, a report that we should have listened to 35 years ago this week. See video of the entire report and the rest of the stories we covered today at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. The Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee heard warnings today that a coal-burning society may be making things hot for itself. Researchers say increasingly large amounts of CO2 are accumulating in the atmosphere. They fear the Earth will gradually become warmer causing as yet uncertain but possibly disruptive changes in the Earth's climate. If the Earth gets too warm, for example, ice caps could melt, raising the level of the seas. Changes of this magnitude are very probably going to have a profound effect on agriculture, on all aspects of energy use and generation, and on water and land use. One scientist put the urgency of the greenhouse potential in biblical terms, citing the warning given to Noah in the Old Testament. Noah knew trouble was coming, he said, and he prepared for it. Nelson Benton, CBS News, Capitol Hill.
Plus Switzerland, known for making overpriced wrist clocks long before Apple, but they're also home to the largest food manufacturer in the world, Nestle. Now, Nestle make all sorts of stuff, like Kit Kats in soybean and baked potato flavour, or chocolate made with child slave labour, to dangerous baby formula sold to developing nations as a more healthy alternative to breast milk, which is great for those vegan babies, I guess. Closer to home, Nestle bottles seven different brands of water in the USA, and if you go by their websites, six appear to be delivered by just one guy. Look at him! Water is one of those essentials we take for granted, but just like a massage from a drunk friend going through a breakup, we expect water to be free, but understand there could be a catch. To get one litre of bottled water on the shelves, it takes 86 litres of oil and three litres of water. That's like using a whole Sizzler buffet to make one breaded shrimp. And in California, it's like using a Sizzler buffet that's on fire. Right now, California is having a water crisis. The state is as dry as an Israeli sense of humour. And our food overlord pals at Nestle are sucking dry some of the most precious water reserves in the state, including groundwater in the desert. Yeah, they're tapping what little water there is left underground in places where there is very little water above ground to put in a bottle and truck all over the country to be sold and delivered to your workplace by that one poor fella. Leaving local desert ecosystems dry and residents needing to find water for drinking washing and cooking from elsewhere. Normally, Nestle's bottled water plants would be scrutinised by the state's water authorities, but their Cabazon plant, one of the biggest bottled water plants in the country, is on the tribal land of the Morongo Band of Mission Indians. And because they're a sovereign nation, by law, Nestle don't have to report shit. At another location in California, the Swiss food giant has been taking water from the San Bernardino National Forest, even though their permit expired in 1988. That's what we would call in my country, taking the piss and bottling it. But why haven't the Forest Service been reviewing Nestle's permits for nearly three decades? We have a lot to do. There are a lot of expired permits. Uh, I have 660,000 acres, the National Forest, to work on, and I'm just one guy. When it becomes a priority, I'll be able to. Because the worst drought in 1,200 years is low on the list of priorities, right underneath, hire new hydrologists. When the rest of the state is being asked to cut water use by 25%, according to Nestle's own statewide records, over the last four years of drought, Nestle's water use has increased 19%. And the company insists that it's sustainable. Well, if you don't believe them, they've made this brand new campaign to make you feel better about buying bottled water. You devil. At Nestle, we're concerned about California's drought. After all, if California runs out of water, we can no longer make Arrowhead. But we've got a plan. From today, every time you buy a bottle of Arrowhead water in California, just pour it in the ground. Returning the crisp, clean spring water to the place where we pumped it out to sell to you so you can feel empowered to solve the drought by pouring it back into the ground. Because a sustainable water supply means a sustainable profit. When it comes to the California drought, Nestle gives a damn. Oh, hi again. To put this story together, we relied quite heavily on the investigative work of Ian James at the Desert Sun. If you are interested at all in the water politics of Southern California, then you should definitely look up the Desert Sun and Ian James and follow their work.
One of the worst droughts in decades continues to ravage California. Some 98% of the state is now suffering from a water crisis. Last week, California Governor Jerry Brown ordered residents and businesses to cut water use by 25%. It's the first mandatory statewide reduction in California's history. One group not facing restrictions is big agriculture, which uses about 80% of California's water. Some have criticized Governor Brown for not capping water usage by corporate farms that grow water-intensive crops such as almonds, pistachios, and alfalfa hay, which is exported to China to help feed the country's growing herd of dairy cows. A recent documentary looks at the link between climate change and livestock. The documentary is called Cowspiracy, the Sustainability Secret. It contends livestock is the leading cause of deforestation, water consumption, and pollution, despite many environmental organizations' relative silence on the issue. This is part of the film's trailer. There's suppression and mismanagement of information everywhere. It abounds. It starts at the local level, but then it goes all the way to Congress. When you consider the devastation it's having on our planet as well as the oceans. And we're in the middle of the largest mass extinction of species in 65 million years. And they can dictate the federal policies because they have so much political power. And one of the largest industries on the planet with the biggest environmental impact trying to keep us in the dark about how it's operating. That's the one thing no one talks about. You know, everybody goes around that. Unfortunately, we are no longer able to fund your film project. We had a meeting, and due to the growing controversial subject matter, we have some concerns that have to corral. You're going up against people that have massive legal resources, and you have nothing. A lot of people just keep their mouth shut because they don't want to be the next one with the bullet to their head. That was part of the trailer for the recent documentary Cowspiracy, the Sustainability Secret. According to the Pacific Institute, 47% of a Californian's water footprint is in meat and dairy products. For more, we go to San Francisco, California, where we're joined by Kip Anderson and Keegan Kuhn. They're the award-winning directors of the documentary film. Kip Anderson and Keegan Kuhn, welcome to Democracy Now! Talk about what is causing the drought in California and what you have documented, you believe, contributes so much to it. You know, the drought in California is being caused primarily from climate change, and there's not enough rainfall. Average rainfall has decreased. Um, but really what we're dealing with is a water shortage, not only just a drought. California is using more water than it actually has available to it. And as you said, you know, 47% of California's water footprint is made up in meat and dairy products. So these are very water-intensive products um, and that Californians and Americans are consuming, which again is exacerbating the already drought conditions. And Keegan, how does livestock uh, compare to other uh, environmental dangers like fracking, for example? You know, fracking is a, a great example. Fracking gets a lot of attention because of water use. Um, fracking uses about 100 billion gallons of water every year in the United States, which is a tremendous amount of water. Uh, but animal agriculture uses in excess of 34 trillion gallons of water, so with magnitudes greater. And then again, the emissions that come from animal agriculture are about equal to natural gas and petroleum production. So it is a, it's an issue that is vastly more destructive when it comes to water consumption, water pollution, and even emissions. Let's go to a clip from Cowspiracy. Here, our guest, Kip Anderson, the film's co-director, explains how much water goes into producing a hamburger. I found out that one quarter pound hamburger requires over 660 gallons of water to produce. Here I've been taking these short showers trying to save water and to find out just eating one hamburger is the equivalent of showering two entire months. 
So much attention is given to lowering our home water use, yet domestic water use is only 5% of what is consumed in the U.S. versus 55% for animal agriculture. That's because it takes upwards of 2,500 gallons of water to produce one pound of beef. I went on the government's Department of Water Resources Save Our Water campaign, where it outlines behavior changes to help conserve our water, like using low-flow shower heads, efficient toilets, water-saving appliances, and fixed leaky faucets and sprinkler heads, but nothing about animal agriculture. When I added up all the government's recommendations, I was saving 47 gallons a day. But still, that's not even close to the 660 gallons of water for just one burger. That's Kip Anderson in the film Cowspiracy. Kip is with us uh, as well in San Francisco. So how does the mandate, the 25% decrease in water, affect, um, uh, is it, does it affect animal agriculture, as you call it? Um, it actually doesn't affect animal agriculture. It's uh, placing restrictions on people using, on not watering their lawns and doing anything you can. You go to restaurants and you have to ask for water. Uh, simple things like this, taking short showers. And another thing that we mentioned later in the film is that to produce one gallon of milk takes a thousand gallons of water. So um, rather than that? being concerned about having one glass of water, um, let's cut down on the dairy Why as well. is that? Why does it take that much water? You know, it takes that much water because the animals have to be fed grains uh, or feed of some type. You know, alfalfa is an incredibly water-intensive crop. Actually, uses alfalfa, which is fed primarily to livestock, uses 10% of all of California's water, or 15%, excuse me. Um, so the water footprint that's embedded in the products that the animals are eating goes on to that animal product and then on to the consumer. So again, you're looking at a pound of beef in California it takes anywhere from 2,500 to 8,000 gallons of water to produce. These are extremely water-intensive products. Well, in this clip from Cowspiracy, we hear from Dr. Richard Oppenlander and then Dr. Will Tuttle. They describe how animal agriculture is leading to the extinction of species and destruction of large swaths of forested land. Concerned researchers of the loss of species uh, agree that the primary cause of loss of species on our earth that we're witnessing is due to overgrazing and habitat loss from livestock production on land and by overfishing, which I call fishing, in our oceans. And we're in the middle of the largest mass extinction of species in 65 million years. The rainforest is being cut down at the rate of an acre per second. And the driving force behind all of this is animal agriculture, cutting down the forest to graze animals and to grow soybeans. Uh, genetically engineered soybeans to feed to the cows and pigs and chickens and factory farm fish. Keegan, can you comment on this, how uh, livestock actually contributes to the extinction of other parts of the species on a mass scale? Yeah, you know, it's the destruction that's happening to entire ecosystems. You know, as Dr. Tuttle says, massive areas of the rainforest, Amazonian rainforest in particular, are being cleared for cattle production. You know, off they look at you know, up to 91% of Amazon destruction is linked to animal agriculture in some way, whether clearing land to create grazing or for growing soy and corb that is then fed to those livestock. Um, but it's also when you look in the United States, we have public land grazing where animals are grazed on federal lands and those animals then compete with native fauna for vegetation uh, and then they're also predated on by wolves and coyotes, bears and bobcats. And so the ranchers put pressure on government officials to exterminate. And that's why we've seen a decrease in wolf population and why wolves are being targeted uh, because of their threat or perceived threat to the cattle industry.
You know, there's been a lot of discussion about the amount of water it takes to grow almonds. Can you talk about how meat consumption compares to vegetable consumption of water? Absolutely. You know, 10% of all water in California is used for almonds, which is a tremendous amount of water. Um, but again, just alfalfa alone, a crop that is not consumed by human beings, that is fed for livestock, consumes 15%. Uh, California produces 82% of the world's entire almonds. This is, again, 10% of California's water is feeding the 82% of the world's almond demands. And the other important fact, in fact is, is that Americans aren't consuming, and Californians in particular, aren't consuming nine ounces of almonds per day, which is not the case for animal agriculture. Animal products, we're consuming nine ounces per person per day in the United States. Again, the water footprint is vastly greater uh, because of the quantity that we're actually consuming. It takes about 1,500 gallons of water to produce a pound of almonds, which is a tremendous amount of water. But again, it's the quantity that we're actually consuming. I want to ask you about the response of environmental groups uh, to your argument. In Cowspiracy, you interview members of some of the nation's leading environmental groups. When you ask them, what is the leading cause of environmental degradation, most decline to comment at any length. The leading cause of environmental degradation is... Um, we uh, need to address that as well. It's not up to the Department of Water Resources. Hard to actually target like one thing. I don't necessarily know what it is. That's a clip from Cowspiracy. Kip, uh, your assessment of how uh, the environmental groups have handled this issue of livestock's effect on the environment. It's really frustrating. Um, that's where the, the film took a turn for looking to these organizations to tell us the answers and what they're doing about this. And to find out they're really not doing anything. You know, you go onto these uh, organizations' websites and their mission statements, and they don't mention the greatest destruction across the board. It's like a one-stop shop for nearly every single environmental destruction is happening today is from this one industry, yet you do not hear about this, or they don't want to talk about this. And the interviews we have in the film, you know, a lot of people, when they, you know, they see them, they're laughing. But if it's not so serious, it'd be a lot more humorous, but it is, it's very serious. And these are the organizations we have to look at um, to to step up and tell the truth, just to share the information of what's really going on. I want to turn to Will Potter, who reports on animal rights and environmental movements. He's the author of Green is the New Red, an insider's account of a social movement under siege. In this clip from your film, Cowspiracy, Will Potter discusses the government's repression of animal rights activists. The animal agriculture industry is one of the most powerful industries on the planet. I think most people in this country are aware of the influence of money and industry on politics, and we really see that clearly on display with this industry in particular. Most people would be shocked to learn that animal rights and environmental activists are the number one domestic terrorism threat, according to the FBI. And why is that? It's a difficult question to answer, why these groups are at the top of the FBI's priorities. I think a big part of it is that they, more than really any other social movements today, are directly threatening corporate profits. That's Will Potter in the film Cowspiracy. And um, Keegan, if you could respond to that and end with why you call the film Cowspiracy. You know, there's a tremendous amount of repression that activists face for whistleblowing against this industry. You know, there's a series of ag-gag laws that have been passed around the United States that criminalize exposing the atrocities being committed against animals in the environment uh, on factory farms. And this is because the government and this industry work hand-in-hand -hand oftentimes. The government... This industry is so powerful, it can put pressure uh, on Congress to pass legislation that doesn't benefit consumers and only benefits the industry. 
we we joked around about the title Cowspiracy for a while because it just seemed so ridiculous that nobody would talk about this issue. Um, but you know, it really starts to come out, and it's something that we explore in the film, you know, in depth that this issue is is so rooted in so many environmental ills, as Kip said. You know, no matter what issue you care about, whether it's ocean dead zones, uh, species extinction, habitat destruction, rainforest destruction, uh, literally the list goes on and on. Animal agriculture is at the forefront of the issue. Why aren't these organizations talking about it? And again, it's something that we explore in depth in the film, and we really encourage people to go to our website, cowspiracy.com, to find out more and to look at all the facts. We have a fact sheet on our website, cowspiracy.com, that has all the information that we used in the film. Hi, Jay. This is Katie in Indianapolis. I just finished listening to your recent piece on reproductive justice, and I was really glad to hear that some of the clips you use connected the recent tragedies that have befallen Pervy Patel and even Bebe Shue to some of the larger issues facing Indiana. As someone who's lived in Indiana for many years now, I will say I agree with Governor Pence on one thing, that the people of Indiana really are good people. And what he doesn't understand is that his political machine has created a massive distance between voters and everyday people here in this state who really do want justice and fairness uh, for all of our citizens and what happens in our state house. I teach here uh, in the community and I see lots of connections between outside money from forces like the Koch brothers, slowly re-manipulating voting districts, eliminating access to voting for our citizens, and these things have a variety of effects. So not just the reproductive issues, not just RIFRA, but things like the HIV outbreak in southern Indiana. So I was really glad to hear that some of your commenters were already putting these pieces together, and I appreciate your call for listeners to not jump on the anti-Red States uh, bandwagon that Indiana is a much more complicated place than um, a lot of the recent RIFRA protests have uh, depicted it as. So keep up the good work. Thank you. And I encourage people to think about different ways they can help Indiana become the place it really can and should be. Thanks. Hey, Jay, it's Wade. Yeah, I wanted to comment on the uh, the so-called riots that are happening in, in Baltimore right now. And, you know, I got I know I'm not supposed to say this, I know, but I don't exactly disapprove. And the, the, why I'm saying that is, you think about, um, think about Occupy Wall Street, right? Very peaceful protests, very large protests, very long protests. And accomplished basically nothing. They didn't care. They didn't listen to them. But you show the city and the police that they don't control the city. The people control the city. And suddenly they get scared. And now they're going to listen a little bit. The Rodney King riots produced change in the LAPD. It may not be perfect, but it did produce change. So we can call these people animals and uncivilized, but you know who else they called that? The guys that uh, threw a bunch of tea in Boston, you know, way back when. They called those guys uncivilized animals, but they listened to them. 
you make the system scared and change will happen. Look at all these police officers that are now being charged with crimes and can you believe it fired because of improper shootings. Now I can't think of a scenario in which a grown man gets his neck broken during an arrest. I, I can't even I, I've never tried to break anybody's neck, but I said it's damned hard. I played four years of football and got dropped on my neck a lot of times and never came close to getting my neck broke. Never seen anybody get their neck broke. So I just don't see how it can happen. And like I've said many, many times before, if you had properly policed that neighborhood prior to this incident, <laughs> you wouldn't be having the riots. But y'all didn't listen. So I guess my question to the Baltimore city and police, can you hear them now? Anyway, that's all I Jake. Have a good one. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. And now today is a very exciting day. I've been waiting for this for a long time. For longtime listeners, you may recall that once or twice a year, I like to do a big fundraiser that raises money for climate change, um, you know, opposing climate change. And so in, in the past, I have ridden a bicycle from New York City to Washington, D.C. over the course of five days. That's a little over 300 miles. Uh, also, I've jumped into freezing cold water several times in, in either the Chesapeake Bay or the Potomac River, raised money for climate change uh, doing that crazy thing. And this year, I'm very excited that I'm going to be going on a four-day hike, averaging just a little over 12 miles a day through Glacier National Park. That's the plan. So it's actually the same organization that puts on Climate Ride, which is the New York to DC ride. They're also doing Climate Hike, where we organize a group of people, we go to uh, Glacier National Park, hike for four days, go rafting for one day, uh, you know, learn about the environment in, in Glacier. You know, obviously glaciers are on the front lines of climate change, so we'll, we'll learn about how the park itself is being affected by climate change in a really profound way, and then raise money to fight climate change all at the same time. So that's going to be happening in August, but the fundraising is happening right now. And I'm excited to be getting back into the swing of things because I actually didn't get to do the climate ride last year. The scheduling didn't work out well. And then I also didn't even do the polar bear plunge this this year in January. And so for anyone who might have been donating to either of those events, you got off easy. So now I'm coming back for this fundraiser and I'm setting a goal higher than I ever have before. So dig deep, help me reach my goal of $5,000. Uh, it's more than I've raised before for uh, for any of these climate change related campaigns, but this time I'm not just raising it for myself, but my girlfriend Amanda is going with me. So she's helping me raise money, but we have a total goal together of $5,600. So I thought I'd just make a, a nice round number for myself, set the goal at 5,000 and see what we can do. 
So if you are interested in donating, you just go to bestoftheleft.com. There is a banner on the front top of the page, so large you cannot possibly miss it. You click that, you get right to my fundraising page, and you're all set to go from there. Uh, huge thanks, of course, in advance to anyone who's even considering donating. Uh, as I said, I'm very excited about this, and I can assure you my training has already started. I, I don't think I am in good enough shape to go on uh, you know, 10 to 15 mile hikes four days in a row just yet. Uh, but luckily, I live close enough to a park where I can go and do these loops of five or 10 or, you know, even 12, 12 and a half miles, something like that. I go for these long walks. I listen to podcasts, hearing about sort of uh, usually the terrible state of the world as, as part of my work for this show. But at least I'm doing it in a natural setting, so that's nice. And I've been working on my uh, on my stamina now for weeks to uh, to get ready for this big climate hike. So if you can help me reach my goal, I'm hoping to do it by the end of May. So I'll be giving you updates as we go uh, all through this month. And you know, we reach the goal, then I get to go. And it's a win-win for everyone. We raise a bunch of money for good, good organizations, and I get to have a vacation this year. Uh, so that's going to be it for today. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained See